Welcome to the Authors Who Lead podcast. This podcast is dedicated to you, people who want to be inspired by authors, leaders, and the messages they share. This is such an important podcast to us because we help uncover what goes on behind the scenes when authors are writing their book. We talk about the process. We talk about where they get big ideas, and you can listen in on those conversations. We can't wait for you to join us. So let's get started. Everybody, Asul Throne is here for another episode of Authors Who Lead. Today, my guest is the beautiful, wonderful Jennifer Loden. She's a personal growth pioneer who helped launch the concept of self-care with her 1992 bestselling book, The Woman's Comfort Book. She is the author of six additional books, including a woman's retreat book, Life's Organizer, and Why Bother, which is the book that I read that we'll be talking about today. With close to a million copies of her books in print and in nine languages, Jennifer is a sought-after speaker addressing audiences across the USA, Canada, and Europe. And she's a former columnist for Living Whole Living, a Martha Stewart magazine, and was appeared on numerous television and radio shows, including Oprah Winfrey Show. And her work has been featured in People, USA Today, CNN, Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly, and Dare to Lead. That's a lot, and it's amazing, and you can't wait to meet her. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it's always, it's like, come on down. It's always interesting to have to introduce a guest who has so much wonderful things to share, but you've definitely earned every one of those accolades that you should be able to have them shared again and again. Oh, gosh, thank you. I'm really excited about talking about the book, Why Bother? Because it struck such a chord inside of me. And we'll dive into what's in there. When did this book start to bubble up for you? I know you talk about it in the book, but I thought I'd let authors know that books sometimes are birthed in many different ways. When did this book oh, start yeah. to show its ugly head? <laughs> I actually think it was 15 or 18 years ago. And I didn't know that when I was writing the book, but I was looking in some files in the basement. I think I was looking for something. My mom passed away. And I was looking for something to do with doing her final taxes. And I found this 40 pages that I had sent my agent. I I don't remember the date, but I was shocked. I think it, you know, I don't think it was like the 90s. I'm pretty sure it was the aughts. (laughs) But it was, (laughs) this this is an idea that has been trying to come through me or, and get articulated in so many different ways for so long, including a memoir that I tried to write for four years and 500 pages that wow. did not work. Wow. When I read that in the book, I was like, oh, <laughs> there's so many of those books that I have in me that are like Me just painfully crawling under a shelf somewhere. Yeah. You, t- you described this in the book that this book was sort of like the in-between space where you didn't write for a long period of time. And mm. when someone has such a great success with her books and has found a lot of uh, accolades, and then having a period of time where the books just aren't coming out. Life isn't producing them for us in some way. What was that like? Where, where did you find your ability to return to a book? One, one, it was hidden away for a while. And two, when you had such a long period of time when you weren't writing. I was writing and nothing was working. Right. So, for the, so during the 11 years, I, one of my publishers brought out an, adi- an edition of The Life Organizer, and I did a short project, almost project for hire for National Geographic. So I did have some stuff coming out that kept me from looking like I was completely disappeared. But in the background, I wrote two novels during that time, which never made it out of my computer. I wrote numerous like, oh, letters to my agent. Look at this. This is a great idea. Yes, this is a great idea. Write the book proposal. And then the book proposal would die. I wrote the memoir that died. 
So there was a lot of writing going on. It's just that nothing, nothing worked. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And some of them are probably made up in my own head. But I also don't think it's uncommon. And I think the main reason is I was really struggling to accept what I had to say. Mm. Wow, that's, that's, that's a great statement. I was going to ask why. And that, that premise alone is the willing, the acceptance part of you. Mm-hmm. And I Don't, found it fascinating. Yeah, well, I was yeah. going to say, I found it fascinating that in the book, I found a lot of moments like that in the book kind of coming up for me mm-hmm. as I read. Yeah, a lot of, <laughs> I had a student um, who I was working with this week say to me um, about something from years ago and that she didn't like that I had done. And she realized reading this book that the reason why it had struck her the way it did was because I was struggling with my own self-acceptance. <laughs> Talk about mm. feeling exposed. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, you really saw me there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like, okay, I didn't know I was that vulnerable, but I guess exactly. You want to be, you know, when you're, when you're in some kind of position of leadership, you want to be this you have it all together leader, but I guess that's just I've blown that cover. <laughs> right. Well, and I was going to say that that's one of the reasons I love this book. Uh, you know, self-help books can have their own way of being, not mm-hmm. yours necessarily, but in general they can. And your book, you show up so presently in your book. You tell lots of stories of other people and the way they've dealt with this idea. We're going to talk about what this notion is in just a second. Why bother? But I was really struck by the way you decided to show up in, on the page. How much of yourself do you write into the book and then decide to edit it out? Or do you just say, I'm showing up this way, and this is how the book's going to be born? Well, I would say that I could answer yes to both of those questions. <laughs> so I think the book emerged, and then the message got clear on what was the book. And then I had to look at what stories did I have or had I already written in the memoir that served that premise. Mm. and Really, you know, there were stories that I didn't include, not because they were not that I didn't want to reveal that those things about me, but because they just didn't fit, right? They were about other things. So I really had to look at what fits the story. I mean, the premise, what will really help people? Because the premise is really to companion you through your own why bother period, not to tell you what to do. Right. I thought that was great. So let's, let's, let's talk about the why bother premise so that people understand what it is Mm -hmm. so they know it's for them or not. Because you, you talk about these beautiful sick principles that help people be that companion to this kind of part of your life. This, this, it could be a period. It could be a moment. Tell us a little bit about the premise of why bother and how you perceive it and helping people kind of come through the other side of it. Well, the big idea or the first big idea is that we all ask why bother in our own way. It may not sound like why bother. It may sound like what's the point? It's all been written before. Everybody else has said it better already. Who wants another book, article, white paper about X? And the fact of the matter is we are not actually asking ourselves, what do I want? What do I want to bother about when we're asking why bother that way? We think we know the answer. And it's not a life-giving one. It's not a positive one. It's not one that invites curiosity. So the first and maybe biggest idea that I want people to encounter from page one is, how are you asking the question? Are you even asking the question? Or do you think you already know the answer? Are you saying it's too late? I'm too old. There's no point. It's been done. Then you're not actually asking the question. And I, my premise is that we all do this. We do it on a daily basis, as you said, and we do it sometimes with big swaths of our life, maybe about our health, our creativity, our marriage, our intimate partnerships. And it, there's nothing wrong with asking 
it's natural. We come to these places where we've lost our way or we've, we're exhausted. We've burned ourselves out or, you know, all kinds of different reasons. We've come back from grief or loss or hardship. I mean, a lot of us are going to be facing this during and after the pandemic when things have been taken from us that we're going great. We didn't want our job to be taken away. So that, that's really the why bother, the idea that it has two sides. It has what I call the grubby bummer side, which is like, oh, right, of course, there's no reason to bother. What's the point? There is no point. And then the flip side, which is what do I want to bother about? Why do I want to bother? And then I want to lead you through that process, not to make a plan, not to get it you know, locked down, because that's just going to be too small. It's going to be too soon. It's going to be too small, but to enliven desire again, to enliven your relationship with life. So then you can make some choices. Yeah. It's the way I've experienced it is I felt like it was the, it was the fuel to the engine. It was the energy to get up and keep going when Love it that. felt like Love I that. couldn't keep going. And I had a couple of those moments reading the book. I was like, I don't know why I'm wanting to cry right now, but I know I'm feeling that this hits a, a really deep chord for us. And I know I would not be surprised by the success of this book because it's a, it's a human condition that we all get into. And, you know, yeah. and especially, you know, empty nest now, my kids are mm-hmm, mm-hmm, me too. grown-ish. I say grown-ish because yes, yes, too. something, um, <laughs> yes. but you start, you start asking different questions. Maybe mm-hmm. they're the same questions that you asked when you're younger, but you didn't apply the same pressure, magnitude, or wonder to them. And mm-hmm. so I found the idea around you sharing the lens of this, this conversation through a critical moment. And the critical moment for me was when you were going to the ferry mm. and having that deep look into the water, wondering if I could just jump in and be done. Mm-hmm. And it was really, it was really hard to accept, but it was really honest because it was like, there's probably moments in all of our lives where we think, is this really worth it? Is this really here? Which is a different, different depth of the why bother scenario. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But originally I thought about leading the book with that story. And then my editor and I were like, no, because this is not a book about just about that level of despair. And I was never seriously suicidal. I actually had a friend text me yesterday. She's reading the book and she said, you never shared your suicidal fantasies with me. I used to have them too. And we were just talking about how there you can just be in a place in life where you don't actually want to die in any way, but you yeah. don't want to, you want to be done struggling. You want to yeah. be done trying to figure things out. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that's what I got. I was, this isn't a, it didn't feel the sense of despair mm-hmm. that this was acting out. But then when you describe, and we'll leave it for the, the readers to go dive into story, when you describe the incident that happened on the ferry, when what was playing on your head started to come to fruition, it really put things in perspective, where, which yeah. is, wow, here we are. I could see what would, could be the result of this thinking when we're in a place of not caring or not desiring to keep going forward or to be fulfilled. And you talk a little bit in your book about this, this feeling of, I would say, almost feels like not enoughness. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're helping someone get through this period, what are some, you talk about six different elements. What are some of the first ones that people need to move through when they're in a place of, of finding themselves in this way? I love the check sheet where you say, if you answered yes to any of these things, <laughs> keep reading. I was like, oh my gosh, what if I checked almost every one of them? <laughs> I, mean, I, I definitely could on some days. So <laughs> and my, my, my husband made a joke about, there's one about, I look forward more to getting into bed than getting out. He's like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> I love when we get into bed at night. So, so yeah, a little yeah, tongue in cheek there. 
Well, the, I came up with this six stages or steps because I gave the book to some beta readers and one beta reader who's a really well-known writer, colleague, I don't know her well personally. And she said to me when she gave me my comments back, she said, I need you to bring these steps forward a little more clearly because I'm in a why bother time and I'm really scared. And I need to know, like, where am I and what can I do? Because I was really kind of rejecting that. I, I don't want to give people a model. It feels so linear, I guess. So the steps are, the first one is leave behind. And the idea, of course, is not we magically go, ah, leave behind. But that we recognize the power of our mindsets, that we have a set of beliefs and life experiences that become a lens that we look through our lives at. And that research has really shown that we can shift our mindsets and it affects our physical health, it affects our ability to take action, our success, our happiness. It's not woo-woo or new agey or positive affirmations or anything like that. So I try to lay out some ways that we could look at some of the things that we could you know, start to get a little bit of distance from. Perhaps they're not the absolute truth. And the reason that this was the first step was because when I looked at my own really long, dark, why bother period that I that included the fairy story, I stayed there much longer than I needed to, you know, that maybe was the natural process of some grief and loss because I couldn't leave behind my stories of how I should have done things differently, to how I should have been um, more skillful at my divorce, how I should have been with my dad when he died, um, I helped my friend who ended, so he didn't die. And it, I really realized deeply that it's our, our, our holding on to what was or what we wish we could still have or our story of what we should have done that stops the why bother process from naturally happening. Yeah. No, that's great. I think that's, that's the, the comfort that it brings. And I'm glad mm -hmm. that you had that advice. The, the comfort came up early. I was like, oh, good. There's hope for this. <laughs> like, I don't have to worry about it. And it wasn't, it didn't feel prescriptive. It felt very much of like a guide. Like I'm your guide, not your guru. And so the feeling of like these, they're really gentle steps towards back towards the light, so to speak, like back mm -hmm. towards yourself. So, you know, one of the things that you describe here that helped me understand that was is this, this deeper feeling of understanding of like the thoughts that are going on in your head aren't necessarily who you are. That feeling of those, the, the right questions, asking different questions. And so, Helping someone orient their brains around not asking the question, why bother, but kind of reframing their brain. What are, what are some of the ways in which you notice that people, when they shift their brain, are able to get reconnected to what matters? Well, one of the big ones is when we start to invite wonder back into our lives instead of knowing or having answers. And when we're in a why bother period, we want answers. We want a plan. We want something to hold on to. But what we actually need to be is in this um, in-between place, this liminal space where just as you brilliantly said earlier, we're finding that life again. We're finding that light or that juice. And so beginning to just ask, I wonder, and I have some stories and ideas in the book, but that's a really powerful question. I wonder. And I find that wonder opens the door to desire, to life again. We really have a natural capacity for wonder, but our brains like answers instead, even if the answers make us give up. Mm, yeah. Can you, you, you share several great examples about someone who's going through this period and find themselves going through the other side. What's one of your favorites or one that sticks out to you that you could share with us? You know, there's Petra's story and she was really unhappy in her creative work life and really unhappy in her marriage. 
And, but, but kind of, you know, making do, right? What we do. Well, why bother to try to change things? I'll just stay in this marriage for the kids. And it's going to be too hard to go to the city to, to go to a job that I would like. And then her, basically her mother-in-law, who, and they lived in kind of a family compound, if I'm remembering it correctly. She dropped dead at Christmas time. Like they went to find her because I hadn't heard from her for a while and she was dead in the living room. And that was the shocking sort of wake up call because she saw herself in the choices that the mother-in-law was making. It was the second wife or girlfriend of her father-in-law and really had seen like they'd been reflection for each other and the ways that they were putting off their own desires, putting off their own life, settling. And that was her wake up call and everything started changing from there on out. Yeah. And I, th- I think those wake up calls, they can come in any form. Honestly, I want to really give you this compliment that, that this book, Why Bother, can be that wake-up call for people. They don't need to wait for something external. I really felt the power and the gravitas of your the 10-year waiting period that the book was being written behind other books kind of come to fruition here. So I want to encourage people that if you're not sure, that this book can really help you open up your heart, your mind to to those moments by observing them through other people, through your story, through the stories of the people you connect with here. So I want people to know that. Oh, what thank the, you. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was really powerful. And we, I read, I mean, I, that's what I do. I either I'm coaching authors and <laughs> we'll talk about that in just a second <laughs> and, or I'm, I'm reading books of the people that are coming on the show. So I spend a lot of time in other people's thinking. And so for its ability to share like this heartbreak and this, this journey and this joy, there's lots of that in this book. Why Bother is really a book to me about joy because the descriptions of the stories are all about reconnecting with that curious self. What if? The what if principle in a positive way is what reignites and starts to turn around, turn the corner around why bother? What, what are, what's one of your biggest turnaround moments when you, when you think about this book and how you can help people understand how those moments happen for you as the author? You know, I've had one with the book launch. If, if I can kind of go past the writing of the book, we started, we fin- I finished the book. I think we finished all the rewrites and cover and everything. Oh, I want to say November, December. And, you know, but there's all the details that, you know, the design and going back and forth on the covers and all of that. So, but we started thinking about marketing in November. We started working on big, big marketing plans and we had... And I can talk about some of the mistakes I made if you want. Yeah, um, that'd be great. <laughs> but first, we'll just say things were going fine, and I was really excited. And then we start to, you know, I start to follow these signs of the pandemic in, in probably early January, and realize that I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm ahead of myself, but I think I'm going to be canceling that ten city book tour. And and of course, when everything becomes what it is now, and everything is canceled, and it's impossible to get mainstream media. And for the first time in my life, I paid for outside PR. I've never done that. So they can't get anything either. And um, I went into a really frozen, depressed place. And I haven't been depressed really, I would say, in years for more than a day or two, you know, if I had too much sugar or something exterior. And probably two or three weeks, and I had calls with my publisher, and they were just like, whoa, Jennifer is not in a good place. I'm like, I just don't think anything's going to work. And I really had to read my own book. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I had to go, whoa, you have to leave behind the stories of what it was supposed to be. That's not going to happen now. And it took a few days for sure. And I was not a pretty person to live with. Maybe ask my husband. 
<laughs> but I finally like went, okay, I'm leaving that behind. What I wonder, I wonder what I can create now. And I really tapped into my desire to share this book, you know, and to own it and to be joyful about it. The word that you used a moment ago, instead of the part of me that was so disappointed in that it wasn't going to look the way I'd hoped. So that's been the most recent why bother moment for me. And I'm yeah. really proud of myself that I, that I did it. Like I woke up uh, and I went, yeah, you know how to do this. <laughs> that's right. I tell people exactly what you just described is that the book is for you first, the author first. If it yes. doesn't transform the author, how's it going to transform anyone else? Oh, hallelujah. I say the same thing. Yes. If you don't discover and grow while you're writing it, if you're just regurgitating what you already know, it's like it arrives dead. You know, yeah. it doesn't have a life that people can pick up on that's that something that you discover. Yeah, no, absolutely, 100%. And I always tell people, look, we're all selling sunshine here. Like the truth mm. is, we're not saying something new. <laughs> what you have to do is apply your own lens to it, your own yes. unique self. And if you don't see yourself differently through this work, then it's just going to be information, just transactional information. If you want to have a transformation, you've got to lean into the, the tight spots. Like I always tell people, it feels like yoga to me. Like, oh, breathe into that spot. And I'm like, breathe into that spot. I want to just tear my leg off. It hurts so much. It's so uncomfortable. <laughs> How do you breathe into something? And that's, that's really what writing can be for me. So since you do help authors and you help writers mm -hmm. and you help get people to the other side, what are, what are some of the, the challenges and blocks you observe most people show up with? Well, I work primarily with women. And the big one that I see is an inability to claim what they know to claim their voice. And the other one is to be seen. I have worked with some people for years. Now that writing is not their way they make a living. It's something that they want to do. And they, and they have the, you know, they have the skills, they're willing to do the work, they're willing to learn, but they are not willing to really reveal themselves. Mm -hmm. They're not willing to really do. Um, there's a beautiful Peter Elbow quote, the wonderful writing professor. And it's about that writing doesn't fail because of skill. I'm, I'm mangling his words, but I could find them if y'all want them. And, but it fails because the author fails to give themselves generously. Mm. And so that's, that's what I, I really struggle with. And I think it's because women in particular, you know, have learned to put themselves second, third, or fourth, or because they've experienced, you know, some kind of sexism or, you know, it just really is a big thing that I see every single time <laughs> I see this. Yeah. 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 So when I work in collaboration with an editor who we coach, you know, she's going to take the, like we're passing the football, right? It's a beautiful handoff to an editor when I'm the coach. One of the things that we always say is that so many, in particular women are so willing to hand over the microphone at their TED talk and give it to somebody else <laughs> when they're writing because they yes. don't feel worthy or they don't yeah. feel like they have the confidence or that, you know, who am I to say this? And so they spend half of their book, like a book report, uh, <gasps> trying to yes. tell us why this other person said this and that and the, the other. And they don't put themselves in there with any opinion that matters. Like, we want to know your opinion. I don't, I don't want to read that person's book. I want to hear about your book. And so they spend their time steeped in what they call research for the sake yeah, of validation, yeah. right? I was like, it's better if you make up the research if you think, and then go back and discover it than it is to tell me you're researching, which is just looking for validation that you what you have to say is worthy. That brings up two stories for me. One, many years ago, right? As Brene Brown was becoming famous, I, we connected and for a project and 
I had this incredible moment with her, which is why I'm quoted in her books. And I shared with her a concept that I wrote about from my first book. It's called Shadow Comforts. And it's the idea that we do things in the name of self-care or renewal that actually numb us out, don't make us feel better. And this was a huge, she just loved this idea and has shared it widely. And I'm very, very grateful. But this was something I intuitively came upon when I was writing my first book in my 20s. And that I've seen it play out and I've learned more about it, but I never did any research. And what Brene Brown told me that day is I've done the research and you're right. What you found is right. And she could back it up with the research, what I had claimed, which is many of the things, including the ideas in the new book, their experiences I've had or observed working with people. And that's valid. And it took me, that moment with her was so powerful because she helped me see another layer like a, a validity in my own observations. And she said, hey, some people go at it, come at it intuitively and some people come at it from research. Yeah. And that was yeah. profound for me. I'll always be very grateful for her for that. Absolutely. The, the notion of, of where you find the truths mm. can come from observations, from data. Though it's really difficult to have emotional connection to that. You have to work really hard to connect. I mean, definitely Brene's connection with the world wasn't her research, which was to get on stage and say, I'm a therapist who needs a therapist and become completely vulnerable right before us. Then the validation of all the research comes about. Somebody called me a researcher and I I kind of giggled because I don't think of myself as that way. Um, But because I had done a TED talk and I had talked about that for 24 years, I was asking kids the same question, which is what makes a good teacher great? And I collected 26,000 responses to this question. And I wasn't because I was trying to be a researcher. I just got stuck in a a loop of trying to wonder what the heck that they're really saying. And I couldn't figure it out. (laughs) And so, but the truth is, I guess it was research. I'm collecting data. I'm studying it. I'm being curious. I'm trying to make meaning of it because research only has meaning if you can make an output. Otherwise, it's just stuff. So, but I think a lot of people, not just not just women, mm-hmm. can get stuck in the loop about what what, what does it matter, or better yet, why do, why bother? Yeah, um, exactly. Oh, and then that comes up because when we're not, I mean, really, what the book is about and what writing is about is that it's a deep claiming of our own agency, and without right. the declaration that I am is a complete sentence. It's really hard to get your bother on about something as difficult as writing, as taking little black squiggly symbols and trying to create entire worlds out of them. Right. I tell people, and maybe you could help generate more conversation around this, which is a book is a starting point. It is a, it's the conversation you want to own. What's the conversation you want to keep having with this ideal reader over and over if you had two minutes in the elevator or you had 20 minutes on a car ride or you had five hours on the couch, what's the conversation and what would you hope that they would get from it? And if you keep a message that simple, the book serves itself outside of the book just as much as it does in it. And oftentimes people think of the book as the words in the page and the words are just the shadow of what you're really trying to say. It's the best you can do with limited you know, pages, time, attention, etc. I love that. That's beautiful. I use the metaphor of it's one basket of many different baskets you can have. And then all the baskets can be in different shapes and sizes. So you can have the basket of the conversation on the couch or the conversation with clients or the conversation on the stage. But people tend to put like a big silo around the book and it gets very frozen. Or they have the conversation that, or the belief that the book is the end all, right? Everything stops with the book or everything starts with the book. 
And when I coach people, I'm like, no, the book is part of the continuum. Yeah. It's, it's one more basket or bucket or whatever metaphor you want. Right. No, it's, form, it's, form. it's so true. I was like, that's a snapshot of what you're thinking at that moment. Yes. And so show up for it in that moment and fully as, as confidently and as truthfully as you can. But if you put too much thinking behind it and not enough of you, your thinking will change. But fundamentally, you're going to stay rooted in this being that you are, even mm. if you do shift, but your unique view. I say, if you were sticking with this metaphor that we're all selling sunshine and some different form, and we're saying that my sunshine's over here, it's the shape of a, a circle, and you're saying, well, my sunshine's great, it's over here, it's the triangle. I say the only difference is that if you took a, a magnifying glass and you held it up and then you apply it to that sunshine, like when I was a kid, I'd burn it, unfortunately. <laughs> and I hate to say it out loud, I get embarrassed. <laughs> or leaves and things. But, but it's that focused light that transforms the sun. It's not the sun itself. The sun will shine wherever it shines. So you are the lens. You, you, your uniqueness, your truth is how the people experience the sun. That's what makes it powerful. And that's why I think your books, and in particular, Why Bother, is such a, a powerful testament to applying your lens to the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I love all of that. And there's just a way that we have to, we have to be able to pay close attention to what is our way of seeing the world or concentrating the sunshine. And that's where it starts owning it, that it's okay to do that and that it's important to do that and it's useful. Yeah. I often realize that, um, you know, if, if people are new at writing or they think they might want to write a book, and what I tell them is the best way to know whether or not you should is by doing it. <laughs> Yeah, right. You can't figure it out ahead of time. There's no way to know. No, we have. I have a couple, not a lot of friends who are authors, and we were talking to a mutual friend. Who's like, I really feel like I should write this book. Blah 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 blah. And this other author and I were like, No, 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 no. Those are not good reasons. You haven't given us a good reason enough yet to do it. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. I'm. I'm enjoying promoting a book right now and not writing one. <laughs> <laughs> take, a, take a little break. <laughs> yeah. I had uh, Carol Klein on the author of her new book that she wrote with Gay Hendricks, Conscious uh-huh. Luck. It's a really fascinating story about the idea of how, how luck is, um, is a decision. It's a way of being. It's, hmm. You can believe, you can either, some people believe they're lucky and some people believe they're not lucky. And she goes, that's a choice. It's a decision. It's, a, it's around your mind. Fascinating conversation uh, around the conscious luck. But one of the things we talked about was her, how she kind of fell into writing early on and became one of the early writers of Chicken Soup for the Soul books. But what I observed is her, her superpower is in asking the questions that bring out the details of a story. And I find that really difficult to, to show authors how to do it. What are you, what's the ways in which you help authors get better at something that that is more of an intuitive thing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. What are your sort of notions for helping people whose writing's good get even better? Well, one thing I do, and I learned this from Priscilla Long, who wrote a really interesting book called The Writer's Portable Mentor. And it's mainly towards creative nonfiction, but it's a great technical book for people who are trying to improve their writing. And she taught me in writing classes I took with her in the Pacific Northwest when when a write, most writing doesn't work because it's too thin. There's not enough sensory detail. There's not enough. We, can't, we don't know where we are in space and time. Or the ideas and concepts aren't well enough developed. But what we do is we go inside the piece that we already have, the draft, and we start hacking around 
we start working on it the way we learned to work on writing in school, which was for a product to get it done. And that's really editing. It's not actually revising. It's not actually what I call deepening and thickening. So she taught me to do it outside of the document. Um, in, an, in another Word document, or what I usually do is on um, big paper by hand. And where are the places that it's too thin? And then I'll use prompts of my writers, like what really happened or what I really meant by, and then take a word or a phrase and go deeper and, you know, fill up a page, go for two or three minutes, do the kind of free writing, keeping your hand moving and dig deeper and give yourself a lot of space to do that. And then see what's the nugget that I want to go back and put in the document. So that's been really helpful for people and for myself. That's great. I love that. I love taking it out of the book mm-hmm. yeah, um, taking and putting it, it somewhere else. Because some people, they, they, you're right. I say we weren't really taught to be writers in school. Mm, we were taught no. to be ed- editors and revisers. Exactly. Or editors, just editors, like pro- producers. Yeah. Grader, people who get graded. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. To make it, like if you're an A student, that was the editing kind of toolkit you had. If you were a B yes. student, you're like, I know how to get Bs. I, I'm going to edit to that degree. I'm going to take out words I can't use the well. I'm gonna, and I, I try to tell writers, like, you have to reprogram your brain to think two ways. You're the creator, the, the sort of that right brain sort of like all over the place because creativity doesn't have any bounds or limits or time or worries. And, and then the left brain, the editing brain, you want it to show up to help serve you. But if they show up together, you're going to live in your head or, or stuck mm-hmm. in the page and not get mm-hmm. out. So I love that you, that metaphor of like even getting off the page, a big paper, mm-hmm. a, a whiteboard to pose questions about time, space, the texture, feel, mm-hmm. t- touch to what's going on in the, mm-hmm. in the moment. That's also what Carol Klein said, is that she, she had to ask, well, what did it look like when that happened? Mm-hmm. What, what did you hear? What was, show me what, it, what you experienced. Then yeah, it, it gets deeper. Right. So that's the second thing I'll talk to people about are salient sensory detail. Because once you start to tell writers about sensory detail, they like to put in the kitchen sink. They'll put in like 17 <laughs> smells and 13 textures. And it's like, you know, we don't actually want all of that. We want to know the sensory details that move the story forward or reveal character or create tension or whatever it is you're trying to do in that, in that part, not just fill up space. And of course, we all know that we don't have a part of our brain that's the reading part of the brain. And so the sensory details light up the part of our brain that's the olfactory part and the sound parts. And, and so that makes it a much richer experience, much more real for the reader. Yeah, no, I definitely felt it in, in the writing of your book. Where was the part of your book, Why Bother, that you felt like gave you the most trouble, that you mm-hmm. were struggling for it to come out the way you intended? The beginning. In fact, I, just, I, I was reading Amazon reviews today and someone said it was a little hard, slow to get into. And I know that. But because the formula for most self-help business books these days is start with a personal story. That's the before story and then the after story. And look, now I'm going to promise you how to get that. And I didn't have that story. I had a very gradual looking back and going, oh my God, things are getting better. And I tried to find that story. I tried to remember that story. I tried putting different stories there. And so, and my editor was disagreed with me. She was like, no, it's it's sort of an abrupt shake you, take you by the collar beginning. And I get into a story, I don't know, a few pages in, but it's still not that before and after story. And so that was the hardest part was writing the beginning. And then I think the second hardest part was as always structure issues, you know, how, you know, and my, my editor was fantastic. She really helped me cut out what didn't need to be cut, what is cut out what needed to be cut and um, really tighten the beginning 
and take out stuff that we then made web resources that made it just too self-helpy and dense. Yeah, no, that's great. When you're, maybe not for this book, because this book had maybe a, a different kind of birth. What is your process like when a book sort of comes to you and you start to, I always feel like they just kind of, sometimes they just swing by, you know, pass by. <laughs> yes, and I, get, yes. I just, I feel a little bit of the hot air, but I don't really know what it is. Uh-huh. And then sometimes I'll come back and it'll linger and sometimes I'll just park itself on my head. How do the books come for you? And when do you know that it's time to start playing with it with words? You know, every book has been different. The first book, The Woman's Comfort Book, came, and that story is in the book, in like this moment of great surrender and despair. And it came as a title, as clear as if you spoke it to me right now. And then it took a few years before I knew enough and believed enough to write it at the time I was trying to be a screenwriter. And then the couple's book was a, this is not my second book, it was a throwaway idea in my book proposal for The Woman's Comfort Book. I said, this was it. This was the amount of thinking that went into it. I was typing and I went, this could be a series. And the second book could be the couple's comfort book. That was it. That was it. No thought, no like thought that they would be like, okay, now you have a series. <laughs> so the couple's book was harder to write, I think, because it didn't come from that. It was a little bit more like, okay, this is a good idea. And those were always really hard for me. Then I got pregnant unexpectedly. And I wrote, my, my editor had the idea. She's like, you'll make billions. That didn't happen. The Pregnant Woman's Comfort Book. And this will be as successful as, you know, what to expect when you're expecting. And it did great, but it didn't do that. And, and so that book was really fun to write because I was going through the process of being pregnant and I was writing about it as I was doing it, including postpartum, which was awful. Wow. And, and so I really enjoyed that process and dig in. Um, then I had a little, oh, I don't know, the next book was The Woman's Retreat Book. And that book felt really important to me to write and really spiritual, but it was really hard to write. And I almost quit. And I remember talking to a mentor, not a writing mentor, but more of a spiritual mentor who was also an author and asking her a bunch of questions about retreating. And she really busted me about not owning my own knowledge about it, my own curiosity. And that was the moment that that book started to move forward and, and finally got finished. But I remember almost quitting and giving the money back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the, the story of most people. Like there's always mm-hmm. that moment where like, what was I thinking? I have a book in particular that I've been working on for four years that should have been written in 40 days, mainly because it's, it's the book that from the TED Talk. So what, what happened? And I'll tell the story. Mm-hmm. I've told it here. Many people listening have heard it. But so I went to this conference and I met Dan Rome, who wrote Back of the Napkin. Great book. Uh, uh, yeah. And we were chatting. He's like, what are you doing? I said, at the time, I was a school teacher. I was helping coach a school in Sh- Shanghai, China, which sounded exciting. But uh, he said, so you're a writer. I had written a book. And he said, well, what are you working on now? And I just flippantly said what I told you about what makes a good teacher great and about that I collected all these quotes from kids. He said, that will be a best-selling book. Let me introduce you to my agent. That was probably the worst thing he could have ever said to me. Yes. <laughs> because there was this immediate pressure that had to be good. Because before, it was just an experiment. It was just an idea, a wonder, a curiosity. And... So I put together a book proposal and I got, got a coach for a proposal because I'd never written a proposal before. And I sent it to him and it was about all the things wrong with education and how we can fix it. And he basically said, this is not a very interesting book at all. <laughs> been there, <laughs> like, been there. <laughs> uh, well, he goes, however, these quotes that you say what kids say and what you've learned from, that's fascinating. He goes, do more of that. Tell us how you got there. Tell us how you showed up. Like, how did this all come to be? And then talk about these quotes. And I think you'll have a great book. 
So that's what I've been working on. And it's been causing me to struggle because when I'm not coaching writers, that's the last thing I want to do is go noodle around my own book. So, but what you said, and you said in your book, just this idea of like, I have to have a deeper reason for this being for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It can't be because it's going to be a best-selling book. No, I don't care. So right? No, you do. You can't care because it's external motivation, right? It's not. I mean, it's nice, but it's not the thing that gets you up in the morning. You have to yeah. connect with your deep why, like why, the, who you are now, who you yeah. are now. If that conversation had never happened, who would want to connect with this book? And that's really, really important. I talk about this to writers all the time. You have to know what your why is. And your why can be, I want to make a lot of money, right? Which is external motivation. Shouldn't be your only why. But it can be in there. You know, I don't think Dan Brown sits down to write because he loves language. He sits down because he loves a good story. And he likes, you know, to write thriller stories. Yeah. It can you know, be because you enjoy making entertaining people. Right. And the, the proof that I was needing is already here. So... I, what I did, and I'll just see you, then I'll tell you, you're helping me diagnose my problems. Good, good, good. I love I'm glad everyone's it. listening into my <laughs> coaching session from Jennifer. I, I went on, I got asked to do a TED Talk at a mindfulness conference, and I'm like, I don't even know much about mindfulness. I think that's meditation. I don't know. Anyways, I was kind of naive, <laughs> but I wanted to use this topic. And so I found the story within here, which was the problem around us and kid, with kids that I discovered is I just wasn't listening. Kids have been telling me all along, what's wrong with schools, but I wasn't listening. And so that was the premise I went with. And I did the TED Talk and the TED Talk did very well. I mean, mm-hmm. so I found the simpleness in the book. I found the place it should go. And now I need to let go of this identity. So I was a teacher and it's taken me a long time to work my way 24 years out of that identity yeah. Yeah. to become this book coach, which I didn't even know what that was <laughs> either. So now that I'm settled in the persona, what I need to do is use this as a way to help myself understand that it is painful to show up on a page and be vulnerable and say, for 24 years, I really basically blew it as a teacher and I hope you don't. Oh my God, that's beautiful. So That makes my heart beat fast. Oh, that's great. Thank you. you know, I, I mean, I would really want to read that as a parent or a teacher. Yeah, because what happened on that, that blew me away on the, the comments page, I try to get in there and answer you know, comments that some people say, don't, it's terrible. Don't, don't respond to these people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I go in there sometimes. Not the, the trolls. People, don't talk to the trolls. No, <laughs> Other people take care of the trolls. I, re- I realize, good, I realize that now. But what I, what I realized is when someone said, I wish I had a teacher like you because the teacher in my schools are the bullies. And it just oh. breaks my heart because they don't feel heard. They don't feel mm-hmm. listened to. So the power of showing up is the way I'm able to, for my why, is I get to serve children now outside of the classroom, outside of the schoolhouse, not being a principal or a teacher anymore. But I can serve those young teachers, those ones who are going in for all the right reasons and say, hey, look, I wasn't listening for very long. But if you listen now, you'll really change the way you help serve young people. So just take a t- moment to listen to what they say. They're not going to tell you perfectly. They're not going to say it exactly as they should. But they're trying to tell you something when they say these silly things like oh. a great teacher eats apples, you're going to have to wonder what do they mean and why do they mean it? This is incredible. You must finish this book because this is incredible. I know exactly who your reader is. They're teachers who care, young teachers, teachers who are trying to stay in the trenches. They're te- you and your, and your service to these students and you're the interpreter. Hmm. You're the interpreter. So I can see these, these quotes. Okay, I'm coaching you. Sorry. Um, this is great. I'll take it. <laughs> okay. 
Pour it on me. <laughs> I can see the story, the quote, the little setup, you know, and then I can see almost the invitation to the teacher on how to apply it, how to reflect on it, how to get, stay curious about it. And it, it becomes a comfort book and an like affliction, <laughs> yeah. you know, it'll, it'll comfort and inspire the teachers, but it'll also like wake them up. Right. I love that. My whole goal is if I can change schools one classroom at a time. I'm not going to change the change systems. I'm not going to try to break it down and reestablish it. But right. one teacher at a time, one classroom at a time, you could really start to change schools. Yeah, you really could. You really could. Well, that's encouraging. So, <laughs> yeah. So this is sort of one of those books that I've been wrestling with to get my, out of my own way because I think I had a lot of angst against the education system when I found myself being a part of it, like, oh, I was a part of the system that I was angsty about. That's what I was so upset about. And well, then I realized, oh, I wasn't, I had everything I needed in front of me. And I always thought it was an external shift I needed to make. Absolutely. And to bring in the six-step web author process, this is what you have to leave behind. You have to leave behind your sorrow, your guilt, your, oh my gosh, I wasn't listening. And if you can leave it behind partially some of the time while you're writing, the book can emerge. Yeah. That's why I told you I had such a shift with this book. I'm hoping everyone, <laughs> I'm trying to sell as many of these books as I can. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but what it is, is that I had this, I was like, I know I'm going to have to talk about this. I'm a book coach who needs a coach. <laughs> so that's my Brene Brown moment. <laughs> we all do. I, I, I had a book coach to help me get this book, you know, out of the mess that it, you know, the memoir. And yeah. Yeah. But what it does is it, it it was bringing tears to my eyes because I was like, oh, this isn't as hard as you think, Asul. Mm. You're just staring at the wrong question. You're mm. staring at why bother, and you need to stare about what if. What's the curiosity? What if this book does sell a million copies? But it's not about that. It's about look at all the lives of young teachers and children and schools to inspire them about these stories of these. Why let these children's stories that they told me in the kids' lives I could have helped go unserved? I want to serve them. All those Young people now, they're my first students are like 38 this year. They're, they're, their kids are in school the age of, that they were when I was teaching them. I so love what, that. What a service to them now to be able to help them and inspire them. So to, you know exactly why you bother about this book. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. I didn't really think about it. So today I was sitting there reflecting on what I was going to talk about. I was, like, I was a little scared. I was like, you're going to have to talk about this. And now everyone's going to know that you are a book coach who needs a book coach. So, uh, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Oh my gosh, so exciting. That's such a wonderful tool. Well, if you had any advice to give maybe new writers, writers who are struggling in the thick of it with the, maybe their why bother moment in their book, as if you've helped, helped me here, what advice would you give them? What part of the book would help serve them the most? Oh, I think, you know, the, maybe the story about where I'm really struggling as a writer, I wish I knew what page it was on by from memory, but I don't. There's a story about the, my first moment of deep despair and stuckness when I was trying to be a successful screenwriter and failing. And when the first book title came to me and then the journey to believe in that book. And I would, I, that might be an interesting place to jump in. Yeah. I also think just asking yourself every question that we've been talking about here, which is what do you bother about? What do you care about? Have you named to yourself? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why? Why does your why is always your way in? Why you care? I did all of that work when I was writing my book and I printed it out and I'm not somebody who prints stuff out a lot and would keep it on my desk and I would read it. Who am I? I had four people in mind, real people who I was writing the book to. 
And I knew exactly why I bothered to keep writing it. And it not only kept me going, but it kept me focused. Mm, that's great. I love that. Find that moment and you will, you'll continue on. Jennifer, this has been such an amazing conversation. I hope people go out and buy the book, Why Bother? It'll be linked up here in the show notes for sure. And also the other books that you referenced that might help writers. Thank you for being generous with your time, vulnerable with your spirit, and serving me here by coaching me a little bit through my, my dilemma. Oh, my great pleasure. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for listening again to another episode of Authors Who Lead. We appreciate you being here, and we hope you subscribe so you get this delivered to your device every week. And if you haven't left us a review, please do so. It really helps. And if you have a book in your heart, you've been wanting to write a book, please go to authorswholead.com and join us on this journey of becoming a published author.